Next week is our Refined Sunday, if you didn't know that already, and so we won't be having our regular class. Our ministers will be uh, leading discussions. I think everybody's going to be meeting in here at 9, and uh, one, of the, one of our ministers will be teaching, probably, be, I would imagine, it'll be Ben at 9, and then, of course, 9, and then worship at 10, and then potluck, and then 1 p.m. early, early evening service. So uh, looking forward to that. Hopefully that'll be uh, good, and uh, hope you all can be there as well. Um, the other day, I got an email about, uh, you know, the... You know how on you, when you text on your phone, sometimes the words get auto-corrected, you know? And, it, and sometimes you send things that's not exactly what you wanted. Well, I got an email that said that the guy that invented that had died. And that his funnel was going to be tomato. <laughs> Let it sink in a minute. All right, never mind. Some are good, some are bad, you know. You do well sometimes, you don't. All right. Turning to Mark chapter 10, we'll continue our study there in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. <clears throat> but Jesus called them to himself <clears throat> and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever... And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. All right. If you were here last week, you noticed what we ended last week's study with the, the section about James and John, how they had come to Jesus and asked him if he could give them whatever they wanted. And what they wanted was to be First, sitting at his side in his glory. And, you know, Jesus had just told them that he was about to go to Jerusalem for the third time and be, uh, suffer and suffer and be delivered up and, of course, to die and be raised again. Not fully understanding that, but they're thinking probably, well, if he's going to leave, I, you know, we want to be at the, we want to take over. We want to be there at the front. Right? We want to be number one, right? And obviously, as you can imagine, the rest of the disciples didn't really appreciate that very much. Um, I'm sure that you've been in situations like that, maybe at work, you know, or someone you could see was, uh, what they call it, you know, kissing up to the boss, you know, kind of thing. You know how that goes, right? Maybe you're the one doing that, I don't know. But you're trying to get ahead. You're trying to get ahead of the other folks at work there, right? Even though you may not be qualified for it any better than anybody else there. Maybe in your families, right? Sibling rivalry. Huh? Got a brother or sister that kind of thought they were the hot head honcho, right? Mom and dad went around, you know, they, were, they wanted to be the head guy. Maybe you had something going on there too. You can understand how the rest of these disciples didn't really appreciate that. We said that Jesus talked, he, he mentioned two things here, right? First, he says to James and John, well, it's not really mine to give, that's the fathers to give the head. And then he tell, but he also told him, says, are you willing to drink of my cup? Are you willing to be baptized with my baptism? Of course, talking about the suffering that he's going to suffer, the death that he's gonna, that's going to take place, right? He's saying, are you sure you know what you're asking for? Right? Sometimes, you know, we can ask for things and it may not be what we thought it was. And James and John, of course, say, well, yeah, yeah, we, 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 we're ready for that. 
even though they probably don't fully understand what's going to happen. But Jesus also uses it as an opportunity to teach something, right? He's going to teach the disciples about what it's like to be in the kingdom, what it's like to be great in the kingdom. And what does he say? He says, one must serve. To be first, you've got to be last. Just like the Son of Man came to serve and be crucified, be sacrificed, right? We have been served by him, by his greatness. We've been served by Jesus. He came to serve, not to be served. He served by giving his life a ransom, by dying for our sins, and he serves even now, acting as our high priest, right, who intercedes for us in the kingdom. He, we are also, who, who else would we think about that we were served by, right? Well, how about the prophets? The prophets spent their lives in service for our benefit, right? We, we had no revelation from God through men who had divine inspiration through the Spirit and were able to deliver things to us about God, commands, character, the character of God, the way we are to live, teachings. And of course, we had many that were like that, Moses, Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and many others. You can go on and on. And also, we are served by the Holy Spirit, right? We're served by the Holy Spirit that <clears throat> had these prophets come to us. We're able to inspire them, right? We're able to inspire the apostles to go out and preach the gospel, right? Able to inspire them to preach the gospel no matter what happened to them, to take up their, to have that cup, to, to be baptized with that baptism that Jesus had. We've been served by men like Peter, James, and John, right? These disciples who eventually, after that resurrection, understood what was going on and were filled with the Spirit and went out and preached the gospel, suffering greatly for it. Remember Paul? First Corinthians, we talked about all the things that he had gone through, the beatings, the, the whippings, the imprisonment, shipwrecked, all those things. Amazing the things that he had gone through just to deliver us the gospel. And we should be thankful for that, right? First Peter 1 and 11 and 12 talk about that, how the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets and the apostles, and they were able to serve us by preaching the gospel for us. How about angels? Are we served by angels? They they had a keen interest in what was being revealed to God's creation, right? We read that in Scripture. They wanted to be part of it. They wanted to understand what was going on, what the salvation thing was, right? And they had a part in that process of revelation. Hebrews 1 tells us that they were to minister to us. When we had our study of the angels, that's what it said. They have been there to minister to those who are being saved, those who are on earth and now and uh, are preparing for that great kingdom of heaven. Who else have we been served by? Well, you could say other Christians, right? I mean, somehow you had to hear about the gospel, didn't you? Whether that was through your family or whether that was through a preacher, whether that was through a friend, you heard about the gospel and you were able to come to God with a humble spirit understanding that you needed to be saved. What a great thing. We've been served by other people. Someone taught you that gospel. Someone made it possible to do that. Someone made it possible for us to be here today together as a family. And you know what? Somebody's going to clean up after we leave. Did you know that? <laughs> Even though you may not realize it, kind of leave a mess sometimes. But we are blessed by so many. Some come and visit when we're sick in the hospital, at home, when we're in need, right? Provide 
transport to the doctor's office for a checkup or an appointment. All these things. We are being served because of what Christ did for us. It's a wonderful thing. And we've talked about that many times. Even though you make your physical, your blood family may not believe the same way you do, you have a family. Whether you think about it or not, right here with all of us. We're together as a family, as part of the kingdom of heaven, children of God. And that's a wonderful blessing. Wonderful blessing in itself, right? We are served by the Son of Man and by those who came after him. Well, what's that say about us, right? The world says, you know, we need to be great. You want to be number one, right? Go for all you can get. You know, climb the ladder. Got to be at the top. Everybody should be striving for that. And, and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great or wanting to be number one, I guess. But when it's at the expense of others, that becomes an issue, doesn't it? When it's the main thing, you know, that takes over everything else, when it's above all else, there's a problem. Jesus said, if you want to be great, you need to be the least. You need to humble yourself. You need to serve rather than be the greatest. And that's how you lead. You lead through service. Jesus served. Therefore, he led. What an interesting concept, right? The world kind of doesn't understand that, though. How is it then that can we serve, right? Well, how can we be great in the kingdom? First and foremost, as we said, someone led you to Christ, so you can lead others, right? You can evangelize. You can be someone who is willing to teach others about your faith, about Jesus Christ, who he is. That's really why we're studying Mark right now, right? Trying to equip each and every one of you to be able to do that. This is a great study for me. Mark, like I said, Mark is short and concise. It's probably, I think, one of the best, the best gospel to use if you're trying to convert a new Christian that doesn't know Scripture. Because you can get right into it. He gets to the point quickly. And it's not that long. It's not that much information other than what you need to know to be saved. What a wonderful thing. We can practice our skills. We can get better. Ministers here, the elders here, have set up things for us to do, giving us opportunities to serve in that way. And we need to take advantage of that. We need to be able to hone our skills, get better at it, be servants in the kingdom of God. Edification, of course, other ways to do it, helping each other. This congregation is great at that. I, I've, never, I've never seen a, uh, well, this is one of the better congregations I've seen at, at helping each other. We're very good at that, I think, and uh, I, in, in my experience anyways. I think that's great. But that's something we can do. Take a special interest in each other. Helping each other. Offering to help serve someone who is in need. Bring meals. Someone sick. Or even teaching. Teaching children. Our children need to know the gospel, right? We need to be able to do that. And then, of course, uh, benevolence. Being kind. Visiting those who are in need. Rendering service. You know, we talked about all those things. Ministering to those who need us. Those are ways we serve in the kingdom. <clears throat> and that's how you become great. It's not about you being the guy. It's not about you being the lady. Mm -mm. It's about you washing people's feet. That's what it's about. Just like Jesus did. All right. Well, I know we know that. But sometimes we need to be reminded, right? We need to understand that we are here to serve. And that's how God is glorified. I mean, the world looks at us and says, you, but, you know, you people are silly. 
Why, why would you do what you do, you know? You're just going to die. What's the point? You might as well get as much as you can out of this. Getting as much as you can is ties about being a servant. Serving others. Making sure their needs are met before yours. What an interesting concept, right? And that's a great segue into the next section of Mark. Let's read on beginning in 446. It says, Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus is always ready to serve, right? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. All right. Here we have Jesus and his disciples making their way to Jerusalem. They're headed down south. And they come up on what was described as the last healing miracle we read about in Mark. All right. The last time Jesus is going to heal someone. There's an account of this in each of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Mark identifies him as Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is going to show us some traits that we might need to think about, right, as Christians. What's the narrative of the city? Well, Mark says they are on their way out of Jericho. Luke 18 actually says <laughs> they're in, on their way to Jericho. And some might have an issue with that. I've heard people say that before. Well, what about, you know, well, blind Bartimaeus? You know, they said they were on the way in and they're on the way out. Well, actually, at the time, there were two Jerichos. Did you know that? They had the old, still the ruins of the old Jericho that had been toppled over, and it was pretty much an abandoned place. And then Herod had built a new, very attractive city called Jericho right there near where the ruins were. So there were actually two Jerichos at the time. So think about it. One that could have been going out of and headed to the other, right? Who knows? But it's just, just an interesting thing to comment on there. They were on the way out or on the way to Jericho, and they come across this man who's sitting on the side of the road. And he hears that Jesus is coming by, right? Well, Matthew says there are actually two blind men. Luke doesn't mention his name. He just says a certain blind man. And, of course, Mark mentions his name as Bartimaeus. And he had sat by the road begging. What does Bartimaeus do? Cries out. Cries out. Jesus, son of David, please save me. Please help me, right? He has faith. He's heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. He has faith that he can heal him. He's heard of the great signs and wonders that he's been doing, right? <clears throat> Many sought to silence him, actually. Try to tell him, no, we don't bother him. Don't bother with him, you know? That just made him cry out more. Just made him more persistent, right? You don't tell me I can't do it. I, I want to be healed. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Blind Bartimaeus shows a great persistence for what he wants from the Lord. He has his faith, he understands who he is, and he knows he can heal him, and he's not going to be stopped. He is persistent, right? Jesus commands him to come to him, and he asks him, what can I do? And actually, uh, when this happens, some tell him, hey, he's calling you out. Come on up. And you got to understand, they're headed to Jerusalem for the Passover, so there's a great multitude here. There's a lot of folks that are seeing this. Obviously, there's a lot of people traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. So there's a great many people here. Jesus asked him, what can I do for you? He says, wrap on eye that I may receive my sight. Jesus' response is, go your own way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he receives his sight. Luke 18 says he followed him on the road after that glorifying God continued to praise him because of what he had done for him, right? Luke says people who saw this miracle praised God. Well, what can we get from this exactly other than the fact that it's, just another, it's another miracle that we see Jesus doing that he didn't fail at. When he decided to do it, he did it. Interesting how he says his faith has saved him, similar to, you remember the woman that had the flow of blood? He said, your faith has saved you. He mentions this again. But the guess, one of the main points of this is that persistence that Bartimaeus had. He knows the Lord can save him. He knows he can do it for him, and he's not going to be stopped. He says he even threw his coat off, his outer garment, right? Maybe because he was afraid that would trip him up. I don't know. He needed to remove that so he can get to Jesus. In other words, he's removing any hindrance to be with the Lord. Another great example for us, right? We need to be with the Lord. We need to be in prayer. We need to be here with each other when we're worshiping, when we're studying scripture about him. And in the end, right? In the end, we definitely need to be with him. Nothing should hinder us from doing that. We don't need to let anything do that. His great faith, he says he's healed because of his faith, similar to the woman, as we mentioned. Do we have that same kind of faith to receive God's will, to do God's will, whatever that is? Whether that means you might need to go out and talk to someone, whether that means you might go need to go knock some doors, whether that means you got a family member who needs your assistance, who's, you know, falling away or having issues, maybe you need to do that. Maybe there's some things that you need to take the initiative and get busy. Also, last thing here is that gratitude, right? Bartimaeus followed Jesus after this and glorified God. He was gracious. He was so thankful. Why do you say, well, yeah, he, he was blind and now you can see, of course he's thankful. Well, you remember the leper? What, the 10 or 11 or 12, however many were healed, and only one came back and thanked him? Which I'd never get that one. Being gracious, that's part of that faith and persistence thing. Humble, being least, being a servant. Not to say the Barnabas was a servant, but his humble spirit allowed him to thank God for what he had done for him. We should be the same way, persistence, faith, and gratitude. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be persistent in your daily life, in prayer? Are you in prayer persistently, unceasingly, as Scripture says? 
<clears throat> are you in the Word? Do you study at all? Are you just here on Sunday morning to hear a lesson? I mean, if that's the case, I don't think you're going to get it. I bet you three or four hours after class, most of you ain't even remember 90% of what I'm saying. I'm just saying, I don't know. Are you in the Word? It's not about just coming to class. It's about studying and understanding it. Now, are you thankful for what he's done for you? As unforgiven sinners, we sh before we become Christians, right? I don't know your experience with that, but I would imagine many of you were very thankful to have your sins washed away, right? And in that moment, you were probably very, feeling very high, right? Wonderful that that had done. But over time, you know, things get busy and that zealousness, I guess, or maybe that high kind of wanes away. Are you still thankful for what he's done? Do you still have that wonderful gratitude for having forgiveness, for the love that he showed for you? Well, that's some big things we can take from Bartimaeus. As I mentioned, that's the last miracle that we read about and the uh, last healing miracle that we read about in Mark. And now we're going to move on to what, what I would say is the, is the climax, or we're getting to the climax of the gospel, right? Chapter 11. From here on out, uh, the events of Mark's gospel take place uh, in or near Jerusalem, and it's going to be uh, about eight days. So from chapter 11 all the way through 16, this will be the rest of our study, we're going to be referring to what happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. So let's read on, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord is need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw the clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their clothes in the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Then Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay. So here we have the great triumphal entry. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt. On a colt of a donkey. Well, what's the significance of all this, right? What, what are we getting? What, what is going on here, right? He's got a crowd, a multitude lining the streets. They're putting the clothes on the donkey, right? That he can sit on it. Kind of refers back to judges. Actually, I don't know if you remember the story of Jehu, but when he was considered to be the next judge, they laid clothes on the steps as he was climbing up to go out and, and kill all of Ahab's guys, right? If you remember that story. 
probably alluding to something like that, a sense of being a king, uh, a royal, a newly anointed leader, perhaps you might say. They're drawing near to Jerusalem by way of Bethany, which Bethany, by the way, means house of dates, Bethpage, uh, house of unripe figs, that's what the terms mean. Two small villages near the Mount of Olives between Jericho and Jerusalem there. And Jesus arranged for two of the disciples to get a colt <clears throat> on which no one had ever sat. Uh, whether that's by foreknowledge, you know, spirit, he knows the colt's going to be there, or maybe a previous arrangement, whatever. Jesus knew that they would consent to letting them take the colt, whoever owned that colt. He arranged for two disciples to get it, and then... They are able to take it. They do ask, you know, what's, what are you doing? You know, you can't take this colt. And tells them the Lord is in need of it, and they, they know to let him go. And then he mounts the colt, and uh, he uh, enters Jerusalem. The people line the road. They're laying down clothes. They're laying down leaves. Uh, these are palm leaves, apparently, according to Matthew. And Matthew even says, I'm sorry, these are problems according to John 12. Matthew, in Matthew 21, even says there were two donkeys. Perhaps one was his mother, and maybe the colt needed its mother there to help it keep it calm. Who knows? But that's what he talks about. Um, then John mentions the palm branches. They are laying down these palm branches, the sign of the king, right? The sign of the king is coming. Crying Hosanna, which it simply means to save. Please save. Please save us, right? That's what they're telling us, crying out. Uh, you read about that. You can read Hosanna. It's used many times. Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our Father. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. And then in verse 11, he says, he enters Jerusalem. And notice that last verse. This kind of gets lost, I think, in, in the translation when we're studying this. He goes straight to the temple. Interesting that he would go straight to the temple. And it says, he looks around. He goes and sees what's going on there, I guess. But he doesn't do anything because it's, the hour is late, and uh, I guess he needs to leave. And so the tw he goes with the 12, and they go back to Bethany, and most likely to stay with the in the house of Mary and Martha. And Lazarus. Uh, doesn't say that in Mark, but that's most likely where he went. Probably in John 12 kind of talks about that. Well, what's the significance of this? Of course, First and foremost, foremost, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. The triumphal entry, Matthew 21 talks about this. Some even view that short visit to the temple as a prophecy that comes from Malachi. If you want, turn over to Malachi 3 and we'll read that. Malachi chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1, he says, uh, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, hmm. even the messenger of the covenant in whom he delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who could endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. Hmm. That kind of leads us to what we're going to talk about next that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Some consider that to be a prophecy of this triumphal entry, going to the temple, and then the next part where he turns over the tables. Um, 
what are, what's going on here exactly? This is the triumphal entry of the king. Jesus is entering. The people understand him to be the Messiah, the ones who are crying out, lining the roads, putting the palm leaves down. They consider him to be the guy that we've been hearing about, the one that's prophesied about. But they're seeing it as a physical, earthly kingdom. They think he's coming to be king over the Jews in Jerusalem. Right? But is that true? Remember in John 6, we had, back when we studied that, we talked about how some had even tried to force him to become king, but he refused. They were looking for him to be that way. However, he describes himself as not being a king of the kingdom of this world, but of heaven. He described that to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 17. He describes that to Pilate when he's before him, and we read that in John 18. And Paul even refers to it in Romans 14. Makes it clear that the kingdom was spiritual, not physical. And along that line, you'll notice he comes into the city riding what? A donkey. The cult of a donkey. All right? When you think of great leaders, after winning battles and wars, how would they have entered the city? On the cult of a donkey? No. They'd come in riding that big old horse or on a tank or something like that with great shout and glory and, you know, pomp and circumstance. Jesus comes in on a donkey. Well, you don't necessarily think about that, but perhaps that has something to do with his kingdom being spiritual and not physical. Perhaps that's a sign that he is the king but not of this world. Kingdom of heaven, where? The one that leads is the one that serves. Hmm, interesting how these kind of play out together, isn't it? In fact, that's even prophesied about. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Let's just, I'm going to read all, you don't have to go over there. I'm going to go over there and read that real quick. <clears throat> Zechariah 9. Chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. <laughs> Here's Zechariah prophesied about this very event. And he's saying he's lowly, the king. Again, the king that serves that has come not to reign on earth, but to die for our sins, be our sacrifice. They don't get that yet, but that's what he's doing. He's entering that city to fulfill prophecy and become our savior. Donkey is also a symbol of peace, just like the kingdom of heaven. He's the prince of peace, right? Yes, sir. That's a good point. Yeah, the world sees leadership as greatness, right? And conquering other peoples, warring, battles. 
but yet his kingdom is a kingdom of humility, bringing those together, offering us hope, offering us the ability to have eternal life. He receives his praise of the crowd, and you know, I'm sure it was pretty exciting to be part of that, right? You know how the crowd could get worked up? They think he's going to be king. I'm sure they were having a wonderful time during that time. The praise, though, really reaches the heights. When you read about that in Revelation 5, I'm not going to read it. But after his ascension, it talks about the praise that he receives in heaven. Yeah, we can have praise here. We can have a little glory. But ain't nothing going to compare to what it's like in heaven. That great joy. And that great praise for the Lord. Well, we're running out of time. Let's move on real quickly. Yes, sir. This is before that, the night before. Yes, we'll get to that in just a second. So when they, he enters a temple, that would have been Sunday, the first day of the week when he comes in. And then he immediately went to the temple, but the hour, and he looks around, but the hour was late, and so they returned back to Bethany. And now we're going to get into the next day and read that. So let's go on. Uh, verse 12. He says, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So then they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And we did not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. All right. So it's the next day. It's Monday. He returns from Bethany. And, and actually there at the end, they return back out, probably going back to the house of Mary and Martha. I think he's going to spend most every night there until toward the end of the week, right? <clears throat> and the first thing he does is he sees a fig tree. He's hungry. There's leaves on it. But there's nothing to eat on it. Fig trees... And around March, get these buds on them. All right, I don't know. Maybe you know, some of you farmers know about them. Oh, I don't think we have too many fig trees around here, but they do in, the, in Palestine, I guess, or in Jerusalem this time especially. And then around April, they'll grow foliage. You know, it's the spring. And the local people there can eat of those buds, right, before the foliage comes in. They're, they'll be there for them to take part of local peasants would eat of these things and so he's going he sees the leaves he thinks there's going to be something there nothing there and so if there's nothing there that meant that fig tree was not going to produce any fruit that year and he curses it <laughs> interesting you don't think of jesus you know getting upset that much but he's kind of upset because the fig tree didn't have any buds on it and he says you're never going to produce fruit again to the tree but maybe this is something that the disciples need to hear. Right? It says the disciples heard it. It's interesting how that little statement gets in there. They heard him talking to a tree. 
But then he goes into Jerusalem again. And he says, and he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables. Drives out the money changers and says, you have turned the house of prayer, which is described in the Old Testament. Read about that in 1 Kings and Jeremiah. The temple is the house of prayer. You turn it into a den of thieves, of robbers. Now probably what's going on here, you have the outer court, which is the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as a non-Jew could go, could not go any farther into the temple court. And you had people setting up tables because all the folks are coming for Passover. And they come to pay the temple tax, for one thing. So they have to change their currency over to coins that can be used to pay the temple tax, for one. And then there's all these merchants there with their things to be sacrificed. You know, pigeons, uh, vegetation, those things for the Thanksgiving sacrifices for, that need to be done there for those who come. And so they're lining this court, of the outer court, where the Gentiles are probably having trouble getting around. And you had Gentile proselytes that wanted to participate in the sacrifices just like the Jews. So I can imagine this is all going on, right? And Jesus sees it and thinks, this is not the purpose of the temple. This was not built for you to enrich yourselves. Built as a house of prayer. For God to be with his people. That's what the temple was about. Jesus' disappointment with the fig tree becomes a little bit like a foreshadowing. Right? Because he knows what's going to happen to Jerusalem and the temple. Right? This is the beginning of that prophecy that that temple, that house of prayer, the Jews are going to be scattered. And the temple is going to be destroyed. He's using that opportunity to curse the fig tree to foreshadow what's going to happen to Jerusalem. They don't get it, right? They don't understand that. But eventually, they will. Eventually, they will know what that was all about when they see him die and be raised again. And on that day of Pentecost, when they are filled with the Spirit, and they will understand what it was all about and begin to preach the gospel. Is this out of character for Jesus? You know, we read this sometimes and we think, that don't sound like Jesus to me. But Jesus could get angry. We read about that in Mark chapter 3, remember? He was getting frustrated with the people coming and wanting everything. And, you know, he, he performs a miracle, but he was a little bit angered about the way they were bothering with it. But have you noticed, it's usually anger that's not directed at him. It's usually something directed at God or those of faith. He's always talking back to the scribes and Pharisees, right? But he's very indignant that these people have turned the house of God, the house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Not so much when he's attacked, but when God is, is attacked, right? He bears it meekly when they come after him. You know, we tend to get upset when somebody offends us, right? Personally. Maybe not so much when they come after the church 
or they come after God, maybe that should be just the opposite. Right? Maybe our righteous indignation should be about folks who attack the Lord, not so much when they attack us. And, you know, that's part of that cost, right? You're going to be attacked. Yeah, I know, in America you got it pretty good. There's people in the world that have died for their beliefs. And I'm talking about recent. Jesus' anger is justified. Nothing wrong with it. Not out of character. He's simply defending what is truth. And he's calling out what is sin. All right. Time is up. Thanks for being here.